Welcome to Oncology Morning Commute, recognition of actionable biomarkers in colorectal cancer. Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from CGEN. In this first podcast of our three-part series, Dr. John Marshall and Dr. Sunny Kim discuss biomarkers for colorectal cancer, including HER2. Are you aware of the current guideline recommendations for biomarker testing in colorectal cancer? Drs. Marshall and Kim discuss these and more. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash CRC1. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Marshall is a professor in the Department of Hematology Oncology at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Dr. Kim is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Colorado in Aurora. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Marshall will begin our discussion. We are so happy to be with you this morning. I guess if you are indeed doing oncology morning commute, but you know, there are no rules. You can listen to this over lunch or over an evening cocktail as well. I'm being joined today by not only a very good friend, but just one of the greats in the treatment of GI cancers, Dr. Sunny Kim. We were pleased to be partners for a while till she ran off and left me for the great state of Colorado. And uh, Sunny, Dr. Kim, thank you so much for joining me as we talk about biomarkers in colorectal cancer. Um, thank you for having me. Um, and uh, yeah, it's great to be um, talking about um, biomarkers in colorectal cancer. Yeah, there's a lot going on in this space. And I think there still is, unlike some cancers where the, the uptake in biomarker testing has really been quite good, I think in colorectal cancer, we're still kind of lagging behind in terms of having you know everybody getting tested uh, for the right things that they need to be testing. And so this is a bit of a moving target. So maybe I get to pick on you first and kind of give me an overview of what you think today's standard of care is. And we're really focused here mostly on metastatic colorectal cancer. So you have a patient with metastatic colorectal cancer. What do you got to know? Yeah. So I think the big picture is that we have to find the right drug for the right target. Um, this is what we aim for for every patient, truly personalized medicine. And the way we do that is with biomarker testing. Um, so at minimum, uh, at this point, with a patient with newly diagnosed stage four metastatic colorectal cancer, we recommend that patients get uh, KRAS, NRAS testing, uh, that has implications for drug options, as well as uh, BRAF testing, specifically the V600E mutation, and then HER2 testing, which we can go into in depth a little bit later. Also, if it hasn't already been done, um, mismatch repair deficiency testing, as well as um, checking for microsatellite instability. And then less frequently, because it's uh, so rare, there's um, a fusion protein called NTREC that um, should also be tested for, because if uh, the fusion is present, um, there are very good drug options for that patient population. And then um, we also have been looking at tumor mutational burden. Uh, the data here is a little bit more controversial, but if the tumor mutational burden is very high, then there may be a role for immunotherapy. 
Um, so for me, this is the, the minimum for patients because all these are actionable um, and could potentially improve uh, treatment options for our patients and hopefully their survival. Yeah, you and I have been doing this a long time. I mean, have you ever found an Intrec, by the way? I haven't. I, I'm waiting, though. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't found it in any GI cancer yet, but I know it's there and it's a needle in a haystack. And the day I find it, I'll be very happy for that patient. The, the one I have found was in a, it's actually kind of an interesting story and I think is, a, is useful to why we should be persistent. It was actually in a second opinion. Uh, the patient was a neuroendocrine cancer patient, is a neuroendocrine cancer patient, a physician. And he came to me for a second opinion from a fairly rural hospital in our area. And I said, well, you know, we won't find anything, but let's just do it in case. And it took three months for his hospital to release his tissue for this testing. And when we finally got it, I, you know, I kept I said, you know, forget it. Why am I doing all this extra work for getting this tested? He is my one Willy Wonka golden ticket that I have found uh, over time. And he's been on Intrec uh, drugs for, for quite some time now. So I, it's, there's a reason to be persistent. Wow, that's amazing. And yeah, it just uh, the fact that it, it could vary the, the level of care depending on where you go and, you know, getting second and third opinions. But I'm so glad that you were able to find that in him and give him more options. I feel lucky. I feel lucky. Um, so let's kind of drill down on the testing. You, you first mentioned KRAS. Um, and we, you know, originally it was very specific to KRAS. And then we recognized that there were other RAS abnormalities. Then it's BRAF. And the main one there, I always think of as V600E and then HER2. Our site can do these. I know your hospital can do all of these tests, but don't really do, say, fusions, for example, or tumor mutational burden because we don't do next-gen sequencing on our patients in our hospital. So how are you dealing with this just from a practical perspective? Are you sort of sending out? Or you, do you have all of this in your hospital? What are you telling folks? Yeah. Um, first, I can talk about you know what we do at my institution, and I think it's very similar to what you probably do at your institution. Um, our, our lab here um, can easily do KRAS and RAS testing, um, do the MMR testing, BRAF and um, HER2 testing. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm looking for more tissue efficient testing. And I find myself increasingly you know, sending my tumor samples for next-gen sequencing because you can get everything all at once. Um, I also found that the turnaround times have been pretty acceptable, say about two weeks with um, certain companies. And uh, it's just nice to be able to have all that information. And I find that the depth of information I can also get, say with HER2, since you know, we're going to be talking about that a little bit more later, you know, HER2 mutations, which it's unclear how we act on that in colorectal cancer. But um, yeah, I've been able to find those. And that may not be something I can easily do with my lab here. So if I'm in a pinch and I need this testing immediately for whatever reason, I will look to my lab. But if I'm looking to really get a comprehensive look at the tumor, I, I like next-gen sequencing a lot. Yeah, I've even, I totally agree with you. And I, I, I've gone sometimes to, you know, I've got some of these tests back from a local lab um, and will still go with the broader testing, just so I know in that patient in front of me that I've done all the testing that there needs to be done at the, at the moment, the current standard of care or the current options, because many of the things we'll find in next gen and others 
are going to be potential targets either in the next year or two, uh, or certainly in, in the future. So I kind of want to know, and I, I also reflect on this, what would I want to do if it was my tumor? I realize we're trying to balance being the shepherds of our healthcare dollar. Um, but on, on the flip side, one of these tests is getting to the cost of, say, a, an MRI or a PET scan. Um, and so you, for what is an acceptable amount of money, you can get uh, a remarkable amount of, of data. Uh, the one struggle I get, or one of the main struggles I have with this is finding the result in my chart. Um, depends on where it was sent and is it coming back electronically? Have I gotten it on a fax machine somewhere and somebody loaded it into an EMR? So uh, I often spend time each clinic just making sure I've got the test and I double check it. I document it in my progress note in the HPI section, you know, what we've got and where we're doing. But do you have any advice to others about how to manage this data once you get it back to make sure it's in front of you? Yeah, I've seen it done um, uh, some way. So for us, uh, when the results come back, it automatically gets uploaded into our media tab. So it's accessible. But if it was done, say, two years ago, you know, you have to look back. So that that I agree is, is probably not the most efficient way. Um, but uh, I've seen some providers just put the relevant uh, mutations and biomarker testing within their note for them to refer to later on. Um, and I find that to be very helpful too, especially if patients are coming to me for second, third opinions. And I can just quickly see that um, uh, the relevant biomarker testing and then be able to go back and get the actual report. And, you know, let's kind of shift gears a bit and talk a little bit about different tests because there's a lot of language around this. And these tests are done differently. We talk about liquid biopsies, ctDNA. Many of the tests we've already mentioned, some are done by immunohistochemistry, some are more gene sequencing tests. And um, I actually had a patient I saw yesterday in whom I ordered a ctDNA analysis for minimal residual disease from one company and a next-gen sequencing analysis and immunohistochemistry analysis actually from a different company because I, I like the different ways that they, they do these tests. So it's not a one-size-fits-all for every clinical scenario. So maybe starting with a very basic sort of distinguishing ctDNA for MRD, minimal residual disease, and you know genetic testing for target discovery. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, ctDNA um, or liquid biopsy, as we call them, um, uh, is, is a really great option. Um, uh, the big reason is because it's non-invasive. Um, uh, well, actually, it is invasive. It's just blood draw. But uh, we don't necessarily need to hunt for the archival tumor tissue. And for some patients, it may have already been exhausted with prior testing. And in addition, it may not be feasible to do a new biopsy due to safety reasons or if the patient is... Um, just not happy about uh, another invasive biopsy procedure. Um, we found increasingly though that, you know, assessing ctDNA, the concordance rates with tumor biopsies uh, is, is, really getting, is really getting pretty high, which, which is great to see. I think some of the earlier studies showed a discrepancy in terms of concordance rates, but it's, it's definitely improved. Um, but at this point, you know, tumor uh, testing, um, is really the gold standard uh, because you can assess for certain types of protein expression um, that, that you may not be able to get on a liquid biopsy. 
Uh, so right now, I, I try to do only liquid biopsies if um, we still need some kind of genomic testing, um, if there's no tissue available or new tumor biopsies are, are not feasible at this point. But you know, going back more to bread and butter, like you were talking about, uh, when when we specifically talk about kind of more old school techniques, um, I'm thinking about like in her in her two testing. Um, classically, we've done that with immunohistochemistry, where we stain a tumor slide, um, and a pathologist goes and looks at it and sees how strong that staining pattern is, and you know the score can go from zero to three plus. Um, and if we find that the score is intermediate, which we call two plus, then we reflect to something called FISH. Um, and this, this stands for um, you know, fluorescent in situ hybridization. And we can see if that HER2 gene locus is amplified compared to control. And if, it's, if, it's, if the number is two or above, it's considered FISH positive. Um, this is with the really classic HER2 scoring criteria that has been used in breast cancer and gastric cancer. And for colorectal cancer, that's um, the eligibility that we've used for um, one of the major clinical trials that we'll discuss a little bit later. Uh, but, you know, we find that in NGS testing, um, we're able to go beyond just the IHC and the FISH. We're able to look at amplifications. We're able to look at um, HER2 mutations, which I think is a very interesting um, area of discovery in the future. Uh, you know, when we think about cross-cancer talk, I, I only recently realized that in lung cancer, it's really the HER2 mutations that are important. And that's where, um, you know, certain drugs have been FDA approved. And uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what we can do with that in, in colorectal cancer. Um, happy to kind of probe your mind too about, about that field. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, I'm, I, I was asked to see a patient uh, just this week where they were kind of resistant to everything. And it made me think, this is going to be a HER2 positive patient. Mm -hmm. And yet their immunohistochemistry was negative, but on gene sequencing, there was uh, a mutation. So, you know, the question is, do you then consider uh, going after something like that with HER2 targeting um, when, the, when the sort of phenotype, the clinical phenotype was leaning towards um, this kind of uh, abnormality? So uh, I do think we have to keep looking deeper to understand what makes these things tick um, when we have these therapies that can intervene. Um, I, I, but I, you know, where we are today is just as you described it with the immunistic chemistry with uh, flipping to, to fish and, um, uh, you know, herb amplifications and, and mutations do come up when we do the broader profile and it does provoke us into wanting to try these uh, kind of strategies. So I uh, completely agree with that. I also want to kind of add in that when we talk about liquid biopsies, um, most of the time when I use that terminology, I'm thinking about trying to find a RAS mutation or uh, something like that, uh, presence of a genetic marker, a specific genetic marker. Um, and there we have to make sure, you know, it, you can sometimes find that you don't get a result because the tumor doesn't shed or is not present in high enough quantities in order to detect. And that technology is way cool. And as you say, is getting much better. But, you know, the broader you go with that, um, then you can't be as deep. And the deeper you go, the less specific you get. And, and so you'll pick up sensitive stuff, but it may not be tumor. It may be uh, you know, some marrow abnormality, for example, that the patient has that's unrelated to their original cancer. So 
we're, we're hoping that that technology gets to the place where it can do away with tissue testing. But I, right now, I totally agree with you that if you can, tissue testing remains the gold standard using what I think of as liquid samples to look at change over time may become uh, a new standard. But then there's the other uh, technology for minimal residual disease um, that is really asking a different question. That's not which mutations are there, it's if any cancer mutations are there, a yes, no, uh, with a quantification that goes along with that. And that's a technology that's really been led by the colon cancer world of looking for minimal residual disease, but that's different than what we're talking about. That's sort of like a very fancy CEA or a higher level blood test to say yes or no, there's still cancer around and is it better? So I just want our listeners to make sure they understand that our patients are hearing all of this language. We throw it around um, in different settings. And so we wanna make sure as we talk about uh, any sort of uh, testing technology that we're at least in sync with uh, what, we're, what we're trying to figure out. And also know that different, as you say, companies and labs do different these tests differently. When we send a patient for a CAT scan or an MRI, for the most part, we know we're getting very similar quality, very similar return on those results. If they were done well, if they were done on a modern machine, if they were done with the proper contrast, you know, the one done at University of Colorado is gonna look a lot like the one done here at Georgetown in terms of quality. But when we're looking at molecular testing, they're not all done the same way. And there can be different sensitivities and uh, different results. Um, probably not fundamentally for most of the markers we're talking about, but when you get to some of the more subtle things, um, there can be differences uh, in those technologies. Um, while we're talking about that though, are you finding that you know, like in lung cancer and in breast cancer, where they repeat tests and find patterns of resistance and, uh, and the like, and, and maybe particular to say something like RAS or HER2, are you finding that there's changes over time and therefore we should be repeating tests like they do in those other diseases? Yeah, I think that's where the field is definitely heading towards. Um, you know, I would love to get these, uh, you know, CTDNA tests back in real time, but unfortunately, the reality is sometimes I get them weeks later, and um, it's hard to act on them um, immediately. But you know, we know that with uh, interrogating, you know, doing genomic testing through um, assessing, you know, cell-free DNA, um, these allelic fractions they can change over time, and sometimes, you know that RAS clone or HER2 clone may start to reemerge again. And uh, targeting it with a targeted drug is, is, is something that should be, um, should be very uh, realistic and probably would help the patient. Um, I know there was a recent study presented, I think last year, you know, um, kind of using ctDNA to determine um, whether introducing uh, targeted drugs again in colorectal cancer is beneficial. And um, I think that's where the field is going right now. Um, but until I think the technology is really uh, able to kind of catch up to the the urgency in which we need it. I'm not sure if we're ready for that yet. What are your thoughts? Well, I'll give you an example of a case. I, again, I saw this week, it's been a busy week where um, there's a patient that I saw in second opinion where their doc had done a, a blood test, a, a, a CTDNA 
liquid biopsy blood test and found a BRCA mutation of unknown significance. And I think was distracted by that and in fact started a colon cancer patient on a PARP inhibitor based on that and was able to get that approved and the like. And it's not clear to me whether that's the right move, but I, I do worry in a patient like this, you know, I, you know, okay, now I've got to, do I have to do germline? Is this really something real? Um, when you find some of these unusual, less well-defined targets, um, you know, how we tend to want to go after them in the hopes of finding remarkable outcomes. So, I, I, you know, I'm a big re-challenger. I think as we talk about HER2, I think one of our critical answers or questions is going to be, do we need to retest somebody before we, you know, re-challenge them with a second agent, for example, like they do in breast cancer? Um, but I think there's still a lot for us to learn. Let's kind of go to one last area um, before moving on. And, you know, I, I, I think about colon cancer now much differently than I did even three, five years ago, where um, then it was sort of a one size fits all, maybe minor modifications in, th in thinking to now where, again, kind of like breast cancer, if you're triple negative or ER positive or HER2 positive, you think completely differently about that patient. Well, we're getting there in colorectal cancer. And so if there's a RAS mutation, I, I know that takes some pieces off the board, depending on some patients that might put a piece back on the board. If you have a certain, uh, like a G12C mutation, look at BRAF, and I immediately think of, okay, this is a patient where I've got a sort of first line, second line approach to patients like that, that might be different uh, than, than other patients. I've got an all wild type. Um, I wanna double check my HER2s are negative um, to make sure they're all wild type. Um, and then I'm thinking about different uh, strategies in that patient. Even left and right, I begin thinking a bit differently. So, but I'm not seeing that uptake in the community as much where they're really thinking and classifying patients according to their molecular subtype. What's your take on all of that? Yeah, I think it's really an emerging field in colorectal cancer. You know, there's, there's been more data in BRAF mutations, you know, ongoing studies adding immunotherapy to, um, you know, the, the targeted agents. And then the HER2 field has just really exploded. Um, uh, so I think we we need to um, publicize the you know the pie and the sections of the pie. I think the lung cancer has done a great job at doing this. I'm um, just really showing uh, providers pictorially that they're you know all colon cancers are not the same, and depending on what the molecular features are, we can go down very different treatment paths. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, we're going to get into the weeds on. Uh, HER2 in specific. And I think a lot of our listeners are like, what HER2 and colon cancer? That's never seen one. And I'll bet you it's because you've never looked. Um, and Agreed. increasingly, the more, the more we look, the more we are finding that um, it is not common. Don't, don't hear me wrong. Um, it's not common, but we're going to spend some time focusing on that. But as, as you point out, that's only one of the wedges of the pie. And so in a sense, every patient with colon cancer fits into one of these categories. And with uh, that definition, you now have pathways that are defined or increasingly being defined by both standard therapies as well as targeted therapies 
that will flow through all of this. So um, listen, thank you for joining me for this morning commute. And um, I think this has been a great overview of where we are on precision medicine and colorectal cancer with an emphasis on the different tests that we have out there and how we're going to apply these tests into therapeutic options. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash CRC1. You can find all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today. Today.